Let me take you back to a time before all black women were free. Back to 1829, when Maryland was still a slave state and religious practice by black citizens, both enslaved and free, had to be approved by white gatekeepers. I know, I don't want to go back there either. But we'll only be here for a minute and it'll be worth your while. In 1829 Baltimore, Catholicism was kind of a big deal. The Basilica of the National Shrine of the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary, also known as America's first cathedral, had been consecrated a few years earlier in 1821. Though white Catholics had found freedom from religious persecution in Baltimore, black Catholics, many of whom had come to town as immigrants from French-speaking sections of Haiti and Cuba, had no such luck. Here, freedom of any kind was hard fought for anyone with dark skin. Black Catholics' faith wasn't so readily affirmed in Baltimore. That is, until a tiny, fearless, French-speaking black woman named Elizabeth Lang teamed up with a fellow French-speaking immigrant, a white man named Father James Joubert, to found the very first Roman Catholic order of African-American nuns. She would become known as Mother Mary Lang. Her order was called the Oblate Sisters of Providence. They founded St. Francis Academy, which is still open 188 years later on East Chase Street in East Baltimore. And Catholicism in Baltimore, nay the world, has never been the same. For WEAA 88.9 FM, I'm Stacia Brown, and this is Baltimore, The Rise of Charm City. Episode 4, Don't Start Nuns, Won't Be None. Since we're dealing with 188 years of Black Catholic history here in the West, it's important to start with a bit of academic context. I am Dr. Shannon D. Williams, and I am an assistant professor of United States and African American history. Dr. Williams is a historian of the Black Catholic diaspora at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. We called her to find out more about the long roots of Black female participation in Catholicism and the opposition Black Catholic women faced in the colonial United States. Female religious life actually begins in the first century with Black women. So the world's first monastery for women was founded in the first century by St. Ephigenia, who was also not only the first Black woman to be canonized in the Church, but also the first Black sister to be canonized in the Church. We know what we know about her is that she was a Nubian princess and she was converted to Catholicism by St. Matthew the Apostle. Black female religious life predates the development of female religious life in Europe by two centuries. Dr. Williams notes that despite this history, Black Catholic women in the West have long faced discrimination. Life as a result of the modern era and the slave trade, many of these women, the thousands who are going into religious life, um, are generally being relegated to second and third class sisters. Um, if they are allowed to uh, profess vows, they are only able to do so um, in a relegated or secondary status. Many of them are relegated to uh, domestic labor despite their um, educational background. Um, they were never seen as full sisters, etc. Uh, we also have to realize that many vocations were lost simply because many congregations, European congregations, had blood purity laws or simply enforced an anti-black admissions policy. Really until the 19th century, um, there are not congregations that freely accept black women and girls into their communities until historically black orders are founded in the United States, beginning with the Oblate Sisters of Providence, which is the first successful community. Born Elizabeth Lang around 1794, 
Not much is known about Mother Mary Lang, except that when she came to Baltimore in the early 1820s, she was already well-educated. She lived among other French-speaking immigrants, both black and white, mostly from Haiti and Cuba. She and other members of her community noticed that many black children in Baltimore, regardless of whether they were free or enslaved, weren't receiving an adequate education. This was despite the fact that, unlike in other southern states, there was no law prohibiting the education of black children in Maryland. There were some Protestant schools for free black children, but there weren't enough of them to provide adequate instruction to the ever-growing population. Besides, Lang and her community were predominantly Catholic and, at the time, nothing in the way of Catholic teaching existed for black children in Baltimore. Mother Lang dedicated her life to remedying that, and she did so in the face of sexism, racism, and religious discrimination. I could continue to tell you about her impact, but it's far more compelling to hear the Oblate sisters talk about her and the early history of their community themselves. Uh, my name is Sister Elsa Maria Lopez Aguero, and I came from Cuba. I born in Cuba. Sister Elsa Maria has been an Oblate Sister of Providence for 60 years. Went to the school um, since I was eight years old. I knew about them since I was five because my godmother was a sister even before that. And my mother, um, too, knew the sisters. So we grew up with the sisters. So, oh, I'm very proud. I, most, some of the sisters, some of the people knew motherland. I don't think we know what we had. Uh, Sometimes I, I look at Maryland in the PBS, and I say, Either she was crazy or she was brave because she came in the middle of a slavery in the middle of a segregated community. Uh, I mean, she was, she was a smart woman with the whip that I wish we had. I wish we had. My name is Sister John Francis. I'm the president of St. Francis Academy. Sister John Francis, who joined the sisterhood in the late 1960s, is the only white member of the Oblate Sisters of Providence community. She told us about some of the opposition Mother Lang faced, not just because of her race, but because of her gender as well. In the 1840s, after Father Joubert died, in those days, everything was done by men. So, you know, um, and, and being... Uh, women of color, they had even less, but he, just being women, okay. So Father Joubert was a Frenchman, and he was the protector of the sisters. I mean, you know, he got for, he, he, they couldn't even sign a contract. And it was funny because when I was trying to do some things here and, and I had to get deeds and things, I found that they were all signed by men, you know, um, even the deed to the, to the property, you know. So Father Ju when Father Joubert died, that was a, a big traumatic experience because, you know, it wasn't going to be easy to find somebody to replace him because here's this little aura of colored women, you know, that the, the Ku Klux Klan was after and they threatened and all of that. that was, they didn't want them to wear religious garb because of, you know, being um, uh, of African-American heritage. And so... A lot of, uh, you know, the bishop told us, we should, told Mother Lang, 
This is what he told her. He, he said, you should disband and have your sisters go into domestic service because they knew how to iron and wash and all that. And Mother Lang, as little as she was, she said no. You know, so to defy the bishop in those days. My name is Sister Eva um, Nakagwa Bazanya from Uganda. On our foundress, her life, uh, how she lived those days, it kind of struck me because it was a tough time for her. And to see that she made it through and no matter what, you know, she was consistent and, and God probably sustained her. And so whenever we have those moments or whenever I have those moments, I look unto her, I pray through her to help me overcome those challenges. Sister Eva was 30 when she joined the sisterhood. She is one of the youngest members of the Oblate Sisters, which at its height in the 1950s, had over 300 sisters teaching and serving in several states and countries overseas. Today, there are under 100 Oblate Sisters, many of whom are older women. Sister Eva says she's most grateful for the sisters because they were welcoming and inclusive. From the beginning, I felt, you know, I was at home because I longed to be a nun since I was about 16 years old. And all in uh, all these years, I've been trying several congregations. And um, I mean, I, I couldn't just meet their requirements. But when I became one of the outlets, I felt home and... I feel this is where God wants me to be and to serve him much better. Here's where I need to pause, for confession, if you will. I don't know much about Catholicism, and I know even less about its kindly, habit-wearing women who run full tilt toward piety. Much of what I've picked up has been from popular culture, the sound of music, Sister Acts 1 and 2. But once, I did live with nuns. As a freshman in college, my dorm room was on the fourth floor of Trinity Washington University's oldest building, and a convent was just below it, on the third floor. The sisters and I often shared the ancient elevator. They tell us they prayed for us daily. On occasion, a few of them taught our courses. The Oblate sisters, with their humor and warmth and their unmistakable amalgam of toughness and tenderness, evoked my pop culture and personal nostalgia. They're caring, contented, and fun. Take Sister Claudina, for instance. I've been part of the sisterhood. Uh, I entered in 1961, and I'm looking forward to, let me see, this is 16? Yeah, my 55th year as an Oblate Sister of Providence. Uh -huh. Originally, I'm from Belize, Central America. And I tell you, when I told my dad I wanted to become a, a nun, he said, no way, they're not going to keep you. So because I don't see any spirituality in you. I don't think the nun's going to keep you. And so I said, by this time I was serious about one boyfriend. And I said, well, if I really want to be a nun, I better check that out first before I get married. If that's, you know. So I said to my boyfriend, I'm going to try this out. I, I sent in my, my application. I was accepted. And um, I said, my family is so closely knit. I better go to the States. I'm from Central America, as I said. I said, they might, they might not let me be free enough to pursue what I want to do. So, okay, I came to Baltimore. And the minute I drove up Gun Road and my first hours in our chapel, I knew this was the life I had to live. 
So I said, I'm sorry for my boyfriend, you can better find somebody else. I'm for the Lord. <laughs> I mean, Mardi Gras parties or Halloween or whatever, those are moments we look forward to because we have fun and we do some dances, we eat a lot of stuff. And I just feel, you know, we are, we are celebrating or we are partying most of the time. One of my first memories, um, I came to the convent and we don't have in Cuba a second, a store, a second floor. And I was coming, you know, when you are with the, in the nunnery, put it that way, you have to be very... And I was coming down the step and I took the banister. Oops! <laughs> and so... And some of the sisters were telling me, you better go down, but it was too late. I already came, and the novice mistress was waiting for me, all, all serious. He said, go back. <laughs> I have a good life. I enjoy life every day. The Oblate Sisters of Providence seem to possess the secrets of joy. They work hard, live well, and enjoy the gratitude and support of the communities they serve. As treacherous as the trail must have been for Mother Mary Lang as she blazed it, the fruit of her labor continues to bloom in Baltimore today. Next up, you'll hear more from the East Baltimore community the Oblate Sisters of Providence and St. Francis Academy serve. You've been listening to Baltimore, the rise of Charm City on your source for cool jazz and more. WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. Our production of this episode coincided with an Oblate Sisters of Providence fundraiser. It was a chicken dinner held on a Saturday in the community center at St. Francis Academy. We collected most of the stories you heard from the sisters earlier there as they manned tables, donned aprons, and took breaks from their posts. While there, we talked to Ralph Moore, one of the event's organizers, whose connections to the Oblate Sisters began in childhood. My name is Ralph Moore. I uh, was educated by the Oblate Sisters for nine years in West Baltimore at St. Pius School. I've worked for the Oblates. I ran this community center at St. Francis Academy for 10 years. I love them. I really do. The Oblate Sisters taught Mr. Moore from kindergarten to eighth grade between 1957 and 1966. After desegregation, he left his predominantly black community in Sandtown, Winchester, taking three buses to a predominantly white private Catholic high school in Towson. By the time I got there, I could write well, I could read successfully, and, you know, I had some math and science skill, even though we were at some disadvantage there. We didn't have the money that the other kids had to have nice science labs and, and the latest and the greatest things. But we could compete. And we were prepared emotionally and psychologically to perform there. And the sisters helped do that. We asked Mr. Moore to walk us through a bit of St. Francis history. This building next door to the school was built in uh, 1870, five years after the Civil War ended. And so they built buildings really strong in those days. And uh, down the street is the Maryland State Penitentiary Building, 
which was built in 1810. So at one point, these were probably the only two things around here. But, you know, after all those years, it needs some attention. Lots of things have changed. Again, when I was in school here and before, this was an all-female school, and it didn't go co-ed until 1974. And there were girls who lived here that were from all over the country and other parts of the world, from Central America even. And the school was, was um, an academy. It was St. Francis Academy. And it had very high, strong standards, and it was very highly respected. And I think there's, some of that still exists, and it's, the school is still strongly supported. That's why all those people are coming in today, because they support the sisters, and, and they remembered the education that they got and the, and the support they got. Though fundraisers like the chicken dinner garner community investment, Mr. Moore believes a bigger institution could also buy into the school's future. It's a part of the Archdiocese of Baltimore, and the Archdiocese of Baltimore enjoys um, eight, ten, twelve million dollar financial surpluses each year, but they don't support the school like they should. Mr. Moore says that even though the school is privately run by a religious order, because the Archdiocese also has the power to shut the school down at its discretion, it should make a greater investment in St. Francis as a fellow Catholic academic institution. If they are a Catholic school, here in the heart of the city, and they have needs, and you have a surplus, which you boast about in your newspaper and magazine, then maybe you ought to share some of that. He says that the sisters and lay educators at St. Francis deserve far more financial support. Because they've done the, the tough stuff being here in East Baltimore while the, while the neighborhood has changed, and more and more jail and prison facilities have come into this neighborhood. At one time, and I think it's probably still fairly close to the truth, uh, there were as many as 6,000 inmates incarcerated across the street from this place. The sisters have stayed here. Their convent is right across the street. It used to be on the top floor of the school building. And they've always done, wherever they've been, a whole lot with a little bit. The Amelies used to sell aprons. That's how they built their mother house out in uh, Gun Road. About five years ago, they had a 180th anniversary, and we had it here in the gymnasium. We were trying to commemorate, so that's how they funded themselves for many years. They would sit and make aprons and then sell them to the public. And Soledad O'Brien was the keynote speaker because her mother went to school here. This is Soledad O'Brien, and I am the CEO of Starfish Media Group. I'm an entrepreneur and a journalist. I think the Oblate Sisters of Providence dramatically changed the course of my mom's life, and of course then, uh, by extension, my own life. Uh, really, they were the the convent that took her in when she was leaving Cuba. I don't think she could have come from Cuba if she didn't have a place that she deemed and her mom deemed safe um, to come and learn. I think my mom's lessons from the Oblate Sisters of Providence um, were ones that she really tried to instill in us as children. She's very devout. But more than devout, I think she looks at um, religion as as her, her Catholicism is a, is a religion of action that you can't just sit around and wring your hands about, say, the poor. You, you have to do something. And I think that was definitely something that the Oblate Sisters of Providence had not only as their history, but clearly um, the nuns who were you know, if you will, raising or, or helping my mom at the time very much believed in that philosophy. And so for me, it was the philosophy that I grew up with. It's, I think, a lot of the reason I became a journalist. Mr. Moore also credits the Oblate Sisters with instilling in him and in generations of students a sense of self-respect. These nuns are about race pride in many ways. 
and they've had to love themselves because they didn't always feel it from people in the larger institution. We, we got a different salary than the White Sisters, lower. So we didn't know that at the time, but later on we found that out. You know, so yeah, we were t- treated differently in every aspect. Sister John Francis came to St. Francis Academy in 1984, and in her current role as school president, she's still drawing on those early lessons to teach her students how to assert themselves in a world that will likely still try to treat them differently than white students from more affluent backgrounds. My name is Natalie Thomas, and I am a junior. Natalie is a legacy. Her great-great-grandmother attended St. Francis, and her older sister, who graduated from the school, now coaches Natalie's cheerleading team there. She's used to private school settings and compares notes with her friends at schools with more financial support. And most of my friends go to Calvert Hall and Mount St. Joe and Roland Park. And when I talk to them about the their experience, they say it's like very fun. Um, they have a lot of resources. They say that it's a lot of classrooms, a lot of teachers. Um, that, and they also say that they don't know half of the school. Whereas with St. Francis, you yes, we don't have all of the resources that they have, but it's more of a family kind of thing. Another student's background is quite different than Natalie's. He is not a legacy, and private Catholic school was a somewhat foreign concept for him. Honestly, I didn't really want to come to school, but then I realized, like, this would be a better opportunity for me and my education. And then I noticed that the low population was in the school building. So I know low population means less distraction. The school taught me how to value time. And, like, St. Francis had my, like, whole life. Because I actually live at St. Francis Academy at the um, boarding program called Father Joe Barrett. And it, like, showed me how to manage 24 hours out in a day. And so my whole life was now on the schedule due to the St. Francis Academy. The Father Joubert House, which opened in 2012, is a program for young men in Baltimore City who are experiencing housing insecurity or living in untenable situations. It's founded by the Able Foundation, a statewide philanthropic organization. The other student we interviewed was part of the program's first cohort, having moved into the Father Joubert House as a freshman. He told us about his post-high school plans. My top three choices are the Naval Academy, Monmouth University, and also um, Assumption College in Massachusetts, Worcester. I'm very big on football, but I realized as I got older that life is bigger than football. And at the end of the day, football going to have a stop sign to it. Up next, we'll find out how a one-time all-girls boarding school has become a championship-winning football school. My sins. You're listening to Baltimore, The Rise of Charm City, on your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. If there's any secret formula for St. Francis Academy's remarkable ability to remain open on what has always been a bit of a shoestring budget, it's reinvention. In the mid-20th century, when boarding its all-girls student body became too expensive, St. Francis ended its residential program. When black Catholic parents began sending their children to white Catholic schools after desegregation, St. Francis Academy, which had been an all-girls school for nearly 100 years, became co-ed. Now it's resumed its residential program, this time for a small segment of its at-risk male student body. And the school itself is predominantly male now, That's due in part to another relatively new reinvention, the addition of a football team. 
And about eight years ago, um, I found that the boys were constantly being approached on the corner of Eager and um, and Greenmount when they would go to Songs, which is the little um, Chinese place for food, by the gangs. They were being, um, you know, lured into the gangs. They wanted them. And they were susceptible because most of them were coming from families where there were not males, positive males, and they didn't have a sense of community. And you can only have so many kids play basketball because it's limited. But football, you can have 50 people on a team and, you know, that's fine. They'll all get a chance to do something. So when I was, you know, approached by football, I thought about it and I thought that this is one way that not only will they be active and they'll be involved in something, but also it'll give them a sense of community. And, you know, um, I wasn't worried about winning and all that. I was more concerned about having something for the boys to do that's positive. But they did start to win and big. Wait, I'm getting ahead of myself. First, let me introduce you to the former head football coach at St. Francis. My name is Masai Hallamariam. I'm uh, assistant athletic director and assistant admissions director and uh, former head coach, uh, football head coach at St. Francis Academy. Coach Masai played college football at the University of Maryland, so coaching was a logical next step for him. But the decision to help St. Francis launch its football program wasn't an easy one. He turned the position down three times before accepting it because I thought that this was too much of a, um, a situation where I, didn't, I, I couldn't offer personally enough resources to be able to facilitate what I thought was uh, important. Football program is an expensive venture, and uh, Sister John took the chance of starting football, not because of what football did, but more importantly, how it took the young men off the streets. If they weren't playing basketball, the ones that didn't didn't really have anything to do in the fall and year round. So she started it for that reason, and it's been a, a blessing, and it's helped a lot of young men since I've been here go to college for free. Coach Masai is from Montgomery County in Southern Maryland. In 2011, Forbes ranked Montgomery County one of the 10 richest counties in the country. It's a far cry from East Baltimore. It's a little terrifying to come from Montgomery County to uh, Baltimore, to say the least. But um, one of the reasons why I turned the, the school down was because I looked at the neighborhood. I looked at what it would take to, to really run a football program, and the school was extremely honest with me that they didn't have a whole lot of resources. They were in debt because of the sport, and they couldn't pay me or any of my staff members, or they couldn't even pay for the sport. So that kind of t- terrified me, but little did I know from a spiritual standpoint, for me personally, um, I'd always wanted to be a head coach. I w- couldn't get hired anywhere else. No one would, not necessarily because of Uh, I wasn't qualified enough and I didn't understand the time, but I thought it was because I was a young African-American. I wasn't really breaking through in the private school sector. But from a spiritual standpoint, now that I look back on it, it was God preparing me for this one opportunity. Coach Masai had his work cut out for him. The St. Francis Panthers were only about four years old as a team when he arrived and they weren't exactly dominating the field. The football program didn't necessarily have, you know, a tremendous success. Prior to myself arriving, they had won one game. They lost 39 in a row, 33 in a row, but 39 overall. And the one game they won was because of a forfeit. So, as you can imagine, that's a very staggering number. Then I was blessed enough, um, outside of losing our first two games by a, a combined 78 points, which started off a little rough for me and, and the young men, 
we went on a 24-game winning streak in the state of Maryland. So we kind of turned things around and we became respectable in the football world. Started to play in the highest level uh, in the conference, MIAA, which had Gilman, Loyola, Cavahaw, and, and those very impressive schools. And we were competing against them, you know, in, in my fourth year. You heard right. Coach Masai took a ragtag team founded primarily just to prevent students from being idle or intercepted by gangs on their way to buy snacks at a corner store to the highest level of competition in the Mid-America Intercollegiate Athletic Association. And he did that in just four short years. Coach Masai says that he hopes in the next five to ten years that St. Francis will be the elite faith-based college preparatory high school for student-athletes. And it's headed that way. It's already does a lot, but I want it to be the Mecca. I want it to be known in the East Coast. That's really the dream, to carry on Mother Mary Lang's vision of, of being a platform or vessel for a lot of the student athletes, or just students, period, or young people in, in Baltimore. To aid in that effort, Coach Masai is constantly raising money for prospective student athletes' tuition and for the building of a stadium that will serve the school and the surrounding community. This program is produced by Stacia Brown and brought to you by WEAA 88.9 FM as part of Finding America, a national initiative produced by AIR with financial support from the Wincote Foundation, the MacArthur Foundation, the Ford Foundation, Artworks, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Baltimore, the Rise of Charm City's field production team includes Ali Post, Mavish Rasa, and Marsha Juice. Theme music by Mark Gunnery for the Center for Emerging Media. For photos and video from the Oblate Sisters of Providence, St. Francis Academy, and the people you just heard talking about them, visit riseofcharmcity.com or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. In two weeks, we'll return with a special episode about the upcoming Baltimore mayoral election and the history of past elections in Baltimore City. 